You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. Let's play a game. Fixed to the underside of your chair, you'll each find a weapon that's been randomly designed for you that you'll need to get out of this place alive in the next 30 minutes. I'm just kidding. It's not that kind of game. That'd be a really weird day for those of you that are visiting with us to start coming to church here today. But I do want to play a quick game. I want to see how much you know about the cities of our world. So I'm going to throw out a nickname of a city and I want you just to shout out the city to which I'm referring. So we'll start off nice and simple with some good old cities here in the United States of America. We'll start really easy. How about the Big Apple? New York City is correct. Look at it. You're all so good at this game already. What about, oh, this is a good one to talk about in church. What about Sin City? Mm. Las Vegas. Mm. Dirty Las Vegas. What about the Windy City? Chicago. Chicago. Very nice. The City of Angels? The Big Easy? A very Lent appropriate, right? New Orleans. We got Mardi Gras last week. All right. What about one more? The Motor City. Detroit, very nice. You're all very good and, and homebodies. Let's go abroad. What about the city of love? Oh, wee, wee, Paris. Mm. What about, this one might be different, the imperial city? No. No. Vienna. Ah, I figured it'd have something to do with water, but it does not. What about the city of seven hills? I'll give you a hint. You've already said it out loud. Rome is correct. Apparently there are seven hills there. Who knew? I did not. What about, let's go with the holy city. Jerusalem, there's my Bible majors. Look at you guys doing such a great job. And I don't know where this city is, but I really enjoy its name. It's just called the happy Anybody want to take a guess? You don't know it. I don't know it either. I've never heard of Palermo. Maybe. I don't know. It could be a city. It might not. This is a list I found on the internet. But either way, what's amazing about cities is even though cities are diverse places, places of culture, places where a lot of people come together, cities, despite their individuality of the inhabitants, kind of take on a life of their own. They take on a character to the point where some major cities we can identify with just a simple nickname because the character of that city, of the character of that place is so entwined into its identity. And now here in Revelation chapter 21, we see this city marked by God. And we've been looking at some of these characteristics that John reveals to us about this city, this representation of the people of God and of an eternity with God. And as we look through the rest of chapter 21 today, we're going to see some of the the deep characteristics of God's eternity, the deep characteristics that mark and identify this city that God is building, that he's going to bring in to our world. And as we've already seen, this vision that John is receiving here isn't a vision of of a physical city with all the, the, the weaknesses and shortcomings that we have in our cities, but a representation of a spiritual kingdom that God is creating, breaking into our world and restoring and healing God's creation and conforming it now into a city of eternal worship. And so we're going to look at the purpose and the meaning of all these things that John has been describing to us here in Revelation chapter 21. 
as we begin in verse 9 and finish out the rest of the chapter at verse 27. And so if you would, read along with me. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes that the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and height are equal. He also measured the wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations walk, and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we thank you so much for everything that you have done for us. God, we thank you for this incredible picture that you give to us through John of your plan for us, of your plan for your world, of your plan for your people. God, I pray as we look at the identity and the character of, of this city in this vision, that we would first and, foremost, first and foremost recognize its builder and its architect, and that we would recognize your majesty, your goodness, your grace, and how incredible your promises are, and that our hearts would be drawn to worship. But God, also, I pray that we would cling on to the hope that we have only through Jesus Christ. And that this window into eternity would move our hearts into action here and now as we wait for this day to come. So God, give us faith in the things that we read. Give us wisdom for the things that we need to understand. 
and an awe and wonder of the mystery for the things that we can't. God, teach us and guide us through your Holy Spirit. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So this passage begins in verse 9 with a familiar character, a familiar figure to the story of Revelation. And even gives us a little bit of a callback. John says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so this angel that poured out the plagues that we saw several chapters ago is now coming back to John saying, Hey, I've got something more for you to see. And John gets this vision of a bride, a vision of the wife of the Lamb of God. And we don't have to go far to be able to figure out and identify to what John is speaking about here. We recognize all through the book of Revelation and also through the entirety of the New Testament and even in some of the imagery of the Old Testament that when this reference is given to the bride of Christ, that the angel is talking about the church of God. The angel is talking about men, women, boys, and girls who have put their faith in Christ and followed after Jesus. And so we put together this picture that we're now seeing this glorified and restored church of God. And then almost seamlessly, we see the vision move into a picture of a holy city. He says, he carried away me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And again, we get into this idea of this city and how we interpret Revelation and the fact that when we approach passages like this, there are definitely going to be a variety of interpretations here. And so just as, as I've tried to do over the course of this entire study, putting cards on the table, there are other ways to interpret this passage. And I've heard pastors preach on this passage about a, a very physical, very literal city of God that, that descends and God rebuilds Jerusalem and it has all of these measurements and it is a, a physical concrete sort of thing. But I do want to make the argument this morning that as we've seen throughout the entirety of the book of Revelation, that what John is speaking about here is something different. And in fact, the best literal interpretation of this passage would actually be to interpret this city very symbolically of a representation of God's church, not just a pretty city that God is building, but something much deeper and something even better. And I think John makes it pretty clear here, that he is describing something unique. And that the way that we should be reading this is to look throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, see how he's used some of this imagery, and recognize the deeper truth and the deeper meaning here. And so let's look at just the case for that. To begin with, the way that this vision comes about is almost a transition between one vision and two. The angel comes to John and he shows him, he says, I'm going to show you the bride. He says, I'm going to present to you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And so he takes John away with the expectation that John is going to see the bride, that John is going to see the wife of the lamb, that John is going to see what he has come to recognize as the church. And that vision moves directly into another one where John says, in order to see the bride, in order to see the church being revealed through this angel and through this vision, he takes me up to the top of this hill and he shows me a city. And so we just very much have a transition from this idea of the bride to now the representation of the city as the people of God, as the bride of Christ. But then when we start to look through the passage, and I know this is in the weeds just a little bit, but when we look through the passage, the, the number 12 comes up a good bit. 
and factors of 12 present themselves over and over again. And all through the book of Revelation, and again, throughout scripture, when we see factors of 12, it's always done in a recognition and remembrance of the tribes of Israel, and also going along with the 12 apostles that that followed after Jesus and, and founded the church on the Christian faith. And then we see when those things come together in the book of Revelation, a number like 144 or some some variation of that number, it's used to recognize the fullness of the people of God, the fullness of the body of Christ. But we don't even have to really do all the interpretive work because at a certain point, John just does that for us in verse 12, 13, and 14. He says, it had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the, tw- at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so even right here, John is in essence saying, hey, pay attention. I know I'm describing to you a city, but what I'm describing to you is a city that was founded on the teachings of the apostles and one built around the ministry of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and basically helping us to see that what we're looking at here is a symbolic vision of the fullness of the people of God being completely and totally restored. But there are a lot of details throughout this passage, things that that do lend themselves towards interpretation and things that help us to understand exactly what this kingdom, exactly what this city, exactly what the eternity for the people of God really looks like. And so once we put away our architect's hat, once we put away our construction ideas and try to figure out what this might look like and recognize that we're looking beneath the surface at the interpretation of this vision, what does this teach us about us? What does this teach us about our eternity? What does this teach us about God and his kingdom? What does this reveal to us about this idea of this city that God is building? Well, the first thing, this city is familiar and at the same time beyond anything we could imagine. It's something that that is familiar, something that seems very grounded in our reality, but also something that is, is far different than anything that we could understand. And one of the ways that we recognize that is where this city is. And we've talked a lot about the directionality of the book of Revelation. And if you're just jumping in today, I know there's a lot of of background that we've already covered. But a lot of times when people talk about what happens in the book of Revelation, especially in regards to Christians in the church, it's a very that way sort of arrow. And so Jesus swoops in, grabs us all up and takes us away somewhere where we'll spend our eternity in something called heaven, but it's really kind of out in the ether somewhere and completely new and completely different than anything we've ever understood or imagined, but it's a taking away sort of thing. But when John describes this vision here, he doesn't see a city going from earth off into the sky somewhere. He doesn't see a taking away of a group of people, but he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And this is a picture of God bringing heaven to earth. This is a picture of God not only creating his people new, but creating his entire world new. And this is a reminder that the plan that God had in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two to create a world and fill it with his glory and fill it with his image is not something that disappeared because of sin. 
that God was deciding, well, this whole thing is ruined, and so I'm going to snatch them off somewhere else and disappear them off into the ether and just let everything behind to rot. In fact, God's plan for this world is still very much intact. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that creation itself groans, longing for the day when Christ is going to bring his restoration because the world itself knows that something is broken and the world itself is waiting for resurrection just like we are. And so very clearly, God has a plan for this world. And God is redeeming and restoring this world. And that should remind us that, again, one of the very first commandments given to humanity inside of Scripture is that we tend and we care for the world that we've been given, that we are good stewards of this world because this is our home, not just now, but forever. God doesn't take us off into heaven somewhere else, but God brings heaven to earth and the dwelling place of God will be with us, will be with his people. And so right off the bat, just the fact that we're here forever gives us a sense of normality. But if we look at Isaiah's vision of the same language, this new heaven, and this new earth that Isaiah has in his prophecy, when Isaiah describes the, this new and restored world, there are things about it that are very familiar. The animals are all around. There's, there's work to be done, tending fields. But the whole social order and the way the world works is turned upside down on its head. Where Isaiah says it's normal, but it's perfected. And so where you have people that once took up swords to kill each other, they take those swords and they beat them into plowshares to care and tend to the earth and put them to the use of building community as opposed to tearing it apart. He says the things that used to cause children great fear no longer do that because the sting is taken away from the serpent. He says the small child will play in the adder's nest. He says that the wolf will lay down with the lamb, that all of these things, all of the chaos, all of the violence, all the brokenness of the social order of our world that we've caused because of our sin, all of those things are taken away. And so it's a world of complete and total reconciliation and peace. And so it's familiar but even just that idea alone is something that's so hard to wrestle with or to imagine in a world that's filled with so much division and violence and brokenness and sin. It's everything we're familiar with, just glorified and magnified by the God of the universe. And so it's familiar, but beyond what we can understand. But also John tells us that it's, it's beautiful. And he gives us this image over and over again of the fact that it is adorned with jewels. It says, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And then continuing on, he talks about all of these different kind of jewels that are found there that I'm not going to read again because I'm sick and my voice sounds gross and it's already hard enough to read. And so if you would like to do an in-depth study of the stones there, be my guest, but I'm not going to say them again. One of them is Jasper. And I feel like I can kind of say that right now. So Jasper is a very pretty stone and Amethyst. I can say that one too. That's the end of it, but they're all over the place. And so John is seeing this vision that is so beautiful. And the best way that he can describe it is it's just filled with gems. It's filled with all of these beautiful stones. And it reminds us of, of the glory and the beauty that God creates with. And I love, I talk to my students all the time. I love the view out our window here because it's just, especially on a nice clear day, other than my trees that are now leaning over because of all the weird weather, you get this amazing picture of this bright green grass and then the dark green of the trees and the blue of the sky. And it's just a constant reminder of how unbelievably creative God is. The fact that he not only created those colors, but he put them exactly where they should go. 
But we still live in a world that's marred by our sin, that's marred by the brokenness that has places, even in the physical world, that aren't beautiful and aren't vibrant. But one day we have this promise that God is going to restore all of those things. And to imagine what God is going to do when he finishes off this creative work and how stunning and how overwhelming and how beautiful our world will be is something that should move our hearts towards an imagination of trying to imagine something we couldn't. And our worship should be filled with hearts just overwhelmed by what could be and what we're going to expect to see God do, knowing that we can't fully imagining it, but just being desperate to even try. And to see the beauty and the grace with which God creates and even to start to recognize that own beauty in our lives. As we've already seen that we're the first fruits of this new creation, that if you've put your faith in Christ, that you are something new and he is doing a beautiful work in your life and making you new each and every day, that there is something inherently beautiful about the work that God is doing in our lives. But it even pales in comparison to what we'll see when Christ returns to make everything right and everything new, that the entire order of God's world will be glorified and made beautiful and pure. Which is the next thing we see about this incredible picture of new creation. That it's, it's the same but different, that it is beautiful, but also it is by nature something that is holy and pure. And when, when John describes these jewels, and when John describes even the metals that are involved here, the way that we would normally pay attention to. Because when I think of something like Jasper, I think of it being green, I think, right? Green? I don't know. I shouldn't be trying to guess these things today. My information bank is completely closed. So we'll just pretend that Jasper is green. And if it's not, don't tell me about it. And we'll just all forget it later and just don't listen to the recording later on. And we'll just pretend I got it right for whatever color Jasper is. But when John describes the Jasper, he says that it is, it is clear as crystal. When John describes gold, I know that gold is, is gold because we named a color after it. And so when John describes gold, we're used to this kind of yellow gold thing happening. And yet when John describes the gold making up the walls of the city, he says that it is so pure that it is clear like crystal. And this language again reminds us of the complete and the total purity of the eternity that we have. That God takes, as we saw last week and even in chapter 20 a little bit, that God takes all of the sin, all the brokenness, all of the pain and the sickness that's caused by the wickedness and evil of the world, the wickedness and evil that lives inside of us, all of those things are completely taken away. All of those things are removed once and for all. And we see this picture of, of a refiner's fire all throughout scripture as the process of God sanctifying and making his people more and more like him burning out all the impurities, taking out all the things that shouldn't be there. And now we see this in its fullness where all of God's creation, as we're going to see in a moment, reflects his glory in its fullness, including, including us. That all of my baggage, all of my brokenness, all the things that I've done, all the stains and the scars that I've accumulated because of my sin and my brokenness, those things are wiped away. And just like the gold is clear as crystal, the Bible says that we are washed white as snow with no impurities or infections. So it's holy and pure. And because of that, the city reflects the glory of God. The language here says that it is radiant. Having the glory of God, it's radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. 
And I've already mentioned that God's plan from Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 doesn't change in Revelation 21 and 22. That from the very beginning, the reason why God created this world and the reason why God created us was for the purpose of fellowship with him because he desired us. It was an act of grace and kindness that God created us to begin with. But our ultimate purpose in life and in creation was to be image bearers of God, to bear his character and his nature and physical form and to spread that glory all over the world. We were designed to be a mirror of God's grace, of God's beauty, of God's majesty. But then we interjected sin into that, right? And we dirtied up the mirror. We broke it a little bit. We marred the image of God. But now here on the other side of Christ's return, we see all of that put back to the way that it's supposed to be. And all of creation itself declares God's glory without any sense of perversion or marring. And it's radiant. That's the way that John could describe it. It, just, it radiates with the glory of God. All of creation declares God's goodness and God's praise the way that it was designed to do. And even each and every one of us, as we live life and fight to try to figure out what our purpose is and how we can use our lives well and how we can find fulfillment and satisfaction in this life, now we see it just given to us. Because if the core of humanity is to honor and to glorify God after this, this refiner's fire, after this restoration and this healing, we'll be able to do that completely and totally. And we'll find purpose and satisfaction in a way that nothing else could provide. But then once it moves past some of the, the physical characteristics here and the spiritual nature of this kingdom, one of the things that I love is in the description of, of the walls in particular, the description of the gates. Because this familiar yet different city, this beautiful and holy and pure city that reflects the glory of God, it contains people from everywhere. The direction here is, is very intentional. As John says, there's a gate to the east and to the north and to the south and to the west. That this city is open to anyone who would come and follow after Christ. And it reminds us that there is no nationality, there's no people group, there's no race or ethnicity, no gender that has a dominance on the, the kingdom of God. It wasn't created for one type of person, but we see the language all through the book of Revelation that God is calling the nations to himself. And we have this reminder here that people are coming in and out of it. And it says, by its light, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And God calls us together, people of every race, nation, and tongue, to honor and to glorify him. And we get to share eternity together, bringing the incredible beauty that God has created with us. And these things that are so often used to divide us and tear us apart are now able to be seen in, in the glorious diversity that God has created them for and calls us together to be a reflection of the totality of his creative beauty and his diverse plan. And it says that, it's so great. It says that the doors will never close during the day. Go, well, that's nice. And then he says, there is no night. <laughs> and so the doors never close. And we just get to come in and out of the city that we get to dwell in the presence of God for all of eternity together. And it's a reminder just of the communal nature of Christianity. 
something that we take away and we cheapen our faith and we cheapen what it means to be a Christian and we cheapen church by making it such an individual endeavor and something that we do by ourselves in our own privacy and thinking about just our personal relationship with Jesus instead of constantly being reminded that God has called us together out of wherever we've come from ever, whoever we've been, that God calls us together under the banner of Christ to the same table through the same faith, the same Lord, the same baptism and calls us to be one body. And we see that because we know even in the best church scenarios, there's still brokenness because we're still people. And yet here, we get to be together with one another forever. And there is no more conflict. There is no more brokenness. There is no division. There is only Christ and his church. And then finally, he makes sure that this city is protected. The city has walls. And in the ancient world especially, cities had walls to keep out things that shouldn't be inside of those walls. And so we have this picture of perfection. We have this picture of beauty and the glory of God. But we saw a little bit of that in Genesis chapter 2. We saw people walking naked and unashamed with God, that there was no division between humanity and their God, that they walked close with him in the cool of the day and were totally unashamed to be in the fullness of the presence of God. And then temptation cracks its way in. And sin separates that relationship with a chasm so wide and so deep and so painful that only God himself could close it by offering himself for us and our salvation. But John is making it very clear here that that is not an option in this eternal city of God, in this eternal kingdom of God. He says the walls are there to protect. And even though the people of God come in and out, we see in verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the book of life. And this is a very carefully guarded and secured eternity. And once God finishes this work that he started, as he's shown himself fully as the redeemer of broken and fallen humanity, as he is, has identified himself in that way and given us that song to sing, the song of salvation, the song of redemption, then he is going to close off the window forever where sin will never enter his kingdom again where shame or brokenness or sickness or death, those things have been put to death once and for all and will never again come into God's good and perfect world. And so there's a sense of security there. There's a sense of, of hope, knowing that the things that we suffer, just like Paul understood, the things that he suffered, the sin that he wrestled with, the, the external temptations, the internal temptations, the internal pressure and persecution, the external pressure and persecution, one day those things will all be gone forever. And so this is a pretty cool thing. This is a pretty amazing city. This is a pretty amazing eternity that John is sketching out for us in the best way that he could describe. And once this restoration, this healing, this new creation is finished, it's time to just get about the work of living in the kingdom of God in its fullness. And while a lot of those things, as Isaiah tells us, will feel very normal, 
that we'll live in community with one another, that we'll have jobs, but those jobs won't have pain or, or difficulty, that we'll have, have relationships with one another, that we'll spend all this time together. The most important thing that we will do is we will be in the presence of God all the time with unfettered access to just worshiping him and for the fullness of who he is. I love the language of verse 22. Because in Genesis chapter one, we see a picture of God creating for himself a temple in the world. But here in Revelation chapter 21, John, excuse me, chapter 21, verse 22, John says, I saw no temple in the city. And that seems like a pretty big omission. That was something that was so pivotal and so foundational to the people of God in the Old Testament. That's something that is so crucial in the life of followers of Christ that we come together and that we gather together as the church in the church. And yet John looks through this vast city and he says, whoa, there's no temple because there doesn't need to be one. Because he says, God himself, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, he is the temple. There's no need for the sun because he is the light that the presence of God is so completely and totally with his people that you don't have to go to a place, that you don't have to go through a mediary, that we get to stand boldly in the presence of God and worship him as often as we can. And the worship is incredible. Just, just there in verse 26, it says, they will bring in it the glory and the honor of the nations. The people of every tribe, tongue, and language are coming together to offer God glory, to offer God praise, and to worship him together. And as we've seen all the way through the book of Revelation, for all the things Revelation is, above and beyond all of the, the prophecies and the discussions that we can have about this book, the book of Revelation is a book of worship, where we see Christ revealed in the fullness of who he is, and where people are called to worship him because of that where we see John fall to his face time and time again in the presence of Jesus, where we see the creatures around the throne, where we see the elders around the throne and the people of God worshiping him with loud and triumphant voices, so loud that it's like earthquake and pillars of thunder around the throne of God. This worship is vibrant and it's moving and it's the kind of worship that we'll get to experience forever. This is a picture of the restored and healed, perfected and glorified and secured church of God around his throne, worshiping him without restraint or without hindrance forever. But why do we have to wait? Why do we have to wait for this to feel like we are able to worship God in this way? Because as we've already seen, the Bible tells us to come boldly before the throne of grace. That we have access to God through Christ. And that Jesus paid that way so that we could meet with him. And we get a really awesome opportunity. It's in a weird way. It's, you don't think about being a homeless church as an opportunity very often, but we do. We have an opportunity to recognize that we don't have to go to a certain place or be in a certain location or have a certain set of walls or a certain type of setup to be able to worship God, but that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, he is there with us also. And the spirit of God, the same spirit that took John up to see this vision is the same spirit that lives within anyone who has put their faith in Christ. And so when we come together, we can worship God with a triumphant worship and a heavenly worship. And it should absolutely, because we don't have any sort of release 
That God looks at Redeeming Grace Community Church and says, oh, well, you know, you guys are in a weird time. You had to leave your building real fast because somebody else bought it. It's kind of crazy. Like, I understand. It's fine. You're in this little classroom. And middle schoolers live here throughout the week. I mean, not like live here, but they might as well because it smells like them. And I'm in it all the time, so my nose kind of goes numb to it. But you might be smelling these middle school smells for the very first time, and they're very strange. And so God says, you know, it's fine. I understand if you just want to come and hang out and you guys just want to rest and recuperate. No. <laughs> we come together. We're the church. And we have the power of the Spirit moving within this place. And we have the opportunity. No, we have the calling. We have the commandment and the responsibility that when we come together, that we're opening the curtain to heaven just a little bit. And whether it's in this building or another space or wherever we find ourselves as Redeeming Grace Community Church, every time we come together and pray, every time we come together and confess, every time we come together and read God's word, every time we come together and sing songs exalting and glorifying him, it should blow open the doors to heaven and anyone who's in our presence should recognize exactly who our God is by the way that we worship. And so let's take advantage of this time to realize that we don't need sound systems, that we don't need a certain type of space or a certain amount of chairs, that we don't need a certain type of silence or reverence or that we don't need a certain experience or environment to be able to worship God. But everything that we need is in God's word and in God's spirit that has changed our hearts from the inside out. And let's be the kind of people that no matter where we are, where we go, we worship God in spirit and in truth and it is vibrant and it is electric and it shakes the throne room of God when we lift our voices in praise to him. I don't want to wait. I don't want to go into this scenario being unpracticed. And so let's make this our calling and our dedication to live with, with new creation in our hearts and in our minds and on our lips when we worship God. Let's not wait, but let's put on display for the world around us just a little picture of the world to come and everything that we do. And next week, we're going to look at how we can do that in a very practical and tangible sense. But even in our worship, even in our songs, let's make the goodness and the glory of God radiate from any space in which we find ourselves. Let's pray. God, it is particularly good to remember that you fill the whole earth. And that no matter we where we find ourselves, no matter what comes in our lives, God, one thing that doesn't leave is the ability to approach you with confidence, to make our requests known to you, but God, also to worship you. God, I just want to echo what Zach said earlier. I thank you just for the heart of our church and for the season where we've been able to just recognize what matters when it comes to being the church. And so God, I pray that you never let us grow weary, that you never let us grow comfortable but that your word would burn like a fire in our bones, that the gospel would stir our hearts each and every day and that your spirit would awaken our spirit and we would just use our lives to celebrate you. But God, I thank you for the times when we don't do that. 
and you are still God and your plan doesn't change. And then even the times of our apathy or our rebellion or the times when we don't worship you in spirit or truth, that you are still building a city made up of your people, saved by your grace. And one day, you will gloriously bring heaven to earth. You will restore your people from the inside out. We will stand fully in your presence. And God, we will be able to worship you like never before. God, help us to find comfort in the familiarity that we see in some of these passages that remind us that our eternal home is, is not far away from where we are here. But God, also captivate our imaginations with the mystery, knowing that there are things about our eternity that we could never even begin to comprehend this side of Christ's return. And as we've asked over the last few weeks, these are big things to believe. So God, I pray that you give us an extra measure of faith where doubt creeps in. And the places that we don't understand and we can't fully fathom yet, God, I pray that you give us comfort and that you give us peace. But also, God, that you would give us wonder and awe as we remember that you are not a God created by human hands. But you're the God that holds the universe and all of its mysteries in the palm of yours. So help us to trust. Help us to have a deep and a wondrous faith. And God, we pray that that faith would motivate our hands and our feet to action and that we wouldn't waste a single moment that you have given us here and now, honoring and glorifying you and loving and serving those that you've placed in our lives for the good of the gospel and the glory of your name. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.